0: Hitler practiced his gestures that he's famous for in front of a mirror. And he hired a hypnotist and he hired a stage actor to have voice lessons. Mussolini was pretty spontaneous, but he'd been a journalist. He trained as a journalist and so did Mobutu in the Congo. So Mm. most of these guys who have success had some kind of training in seducing people through words and through gestures or Berlusconi and Trump had been on TV. So the paradox is that They've worked very hard, and it's all highly artificial what they do, but when they do it seamlessly, people think they're authentic, and then they bond with them.
1: Mm. That's
2: deep. Look in my eyes, what do you see? The cult of Welcome to Sing for Science, the show where musicians and scientists talk about music and science. I'm your host, Matt White. Each week, we'll talk about a song by our guest artist and how it connects with our guest scientist's area of expertise. This week, we'll be talking with Vernon Reed and Corey Glover from the band Living Color about their 1988 breakthrough hit and rock anthem, Cult of Personality. Also joining us is fascism scholar Ruth ben Giac. Dr. Giatt is a professor of history at NYU and an expert on authoritarianism, fascism, and propaganda. In addition, she serves as advisor to protectdemocracy.org and her new book, Strong Men from Mussolini to the Present, will be out this November. The title of this week's episode on the podcast is Cult of Personality, the Psychology and Dynamics of Tyranny. Hello, Living Color and Ruth. Thanks for coming on the show.
1: Thank you. Hi. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for having us.
2: Vernon and Corey, uh, it's such an honor to have you both here today. I've been a Living Color fan most of my life, and yours is easily one of the greatest rock bands of all time, certainly in my book. Um, oh, man, thank
1: you so much. Well, thank, you. thank you so yeah, much, man. We were, we were big big fans of your band, for real. Earl Greyhound was a phenomenal band.
3: You know? Amazing. So.
2: Oh, thanks. Um, so I was probably only 10 when I first heard Cult of Personality, and it's... One of my first memories of having uh an involuntary physical reaction to music like shot of adrenaline pure excitement reaction and you know the same thing happened a few years later i remember when i first heard nirvana but by then i had already started listening to led zeppelin so i had some frame of reference for hard rock but with you guys when vivid your first record came out I was like a clean slate, you know, and and I feel like you guys introduced me to to so much in those songs, like Zeppelin, prog rock, church music, social consciousness, some history. I mean, I may have known who JFK was, but I certainly didn't know Malcolm X. I didn't know who Joseph Stalin or Mussolini were, you know. So um, in preparing for this episode, just thinking about that, and it's just like it's so amazing how much you guys distilled for me. Well, we were. Children of the atom, if you will.
1: I mean, we were, on one hand, there's the civil rights era, but on the other hand, there was the threat of mutually assured destruction that was still hanging over our heads. I mean, even though the people from the 50s really were quaking under that, but we, we experienced the tail end of it. So a lot of the superpower Soviet Eastern Bloc versus the West thing was very definitive. In our backgrounds. And also we were little kids and we, when I was a little kid, I remember hearing, seeing, sorry, or seeing mm. on the nightly news, all the Bull Connor's dogs and all that kind of stuff happening. Mm. And, and that had a, a, a tremendous effect on me and I, I'm sure it had a tremendous effect on Corey as well.
3: Oh yeah. Um, my parents were very, very much involved in the movement from a very young age and sort of instilled that in all of their children to the point where they became very much involved in the electoral process in, the, in our neighborhood. Mary and I are from the same neighborhood. So my parents worked at the polls. But all of their children were tasked to go through the neighborhood to collect signatures, propositions, and and ballot initiatives and that kind of stuff. So the idea of the song was very much in sort of like the wheelhouse of the conversations you'd, we'd have at home. Mm in between, you know, listening to Bitches Brew by Miles Davis and then talking about what was going on. My sister was going to Howard University and, and 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 in the middle in the midst of all this stuff that was going on politically and what was going on socially, within and without of the movement. So we had these 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 sort of conversations. And I'm, you know, I'm the youngest of three children and there's a major gap between my brother and sister and I And so I'm sitting, I'm, I'm a 10 year old listening to them talking about Nixon, you know, and not really having, trying to get, trying to find my way in somehow how I understand this. And, you know, everything seemed very, very fraught.
1: The one thing I remember about being a little kid in the sixties was that all the adults were upset at all the times. (laughs) And, um, it was also a time of just gigantic political personalities. You know, you had the Kennedys, you had Malcolm X, you had, of course, Martin Luther King, and you George Wallace, Bull Connor. Uh, you know, these these are people who just had such a a grip on the public's imagination because also there were very few channels, so everybody was watching only a few channels, and so I think all of the, that all of that information uh, came into play. And it just kind of sat in that subconscious area. So writing lyrics, you know, I, I had this like red notebook that I wrote poems and lyrics in, and I wrote this thing, look in my eyes, what do you see? You know, but there was no music for it. Okay. And, um, we were having a rehearsal in Bushwick in our loft, um, and a rehearsal loft and, um, Corey was like Vernon. He was yo. Know, he had this thing that he was singing to me, and I was trying to play what he was singing. And I literally stumbled onto that beginning riff. Mm. And and once and once that beginning riff started, I could only tell you that the song started to assemble itself using the four of us. You know, myself, Corey, Mus Skilling's, Will Calhoun. It used the four of us to construct itself is the best way i can describe it
2: yeah i mean it it, that comes across and so that lyric from what you just described that was just kind of sitting under the surface as a result of the time when you grew up and the kind of conversations you'd have with your family i mean were you were you like were you also a student of history or, or you know did you know that that term cult of personality i only It was only in, in getting ready for today that I found out that it was Khrushchev who yeah. first said that.
1: Well, well, Khrushchev was another one of these massive personalities. And Khrushchev was famous for being really uncouth. Like the most famous thing about Khrushchev was him banging his shoe <laughs> at the UN. And, and I believe the reason was that his headset wasn't working. And <laughs> he, he was trying to get someone to pay attention to fix his headset where they had translators that were taught. You know, that was the whole thing. And nobody seemed to be paying attention to him. So he just took off his
2: shoes, <laughs> banging it on the table. Do you remember the old Hard Rock Cafe on 57th Street? Yes. Yeah. You remember they had that broken Billy Joel piano from the Live in the USSR concert? And I think it was because he threw a fit because the um, it was either the sound guy or the spotlight guy wasn't taking his cues and he destroyed the piano and it was up on the wall there.
0: <laughs> well, it's, it's symptomatic that the cult of personality was, you know, because because Khrushchev didn't want st- he he had Stalin's shadow right. over him, and he didn't like that because he wanted, you know, to have his own dominance. And so, it's uh, symptomatic uh, that that's how it came into being, because that's uh, this kind of certain kind of male leader who who needs absolute dominance and attention is part of it.
2: Billy Joel too. Apparently,
0: well,
1: it's funny because his denunciation of Stalin was really, um, in its own weird way. Of course, it was very self-serving, but in its own weird way, was a kind of dare I say courageous because the the country was still, even after his death, they were still under the cloud of what he did to to the nation, and and even though it was still an oppressive system, like the the phrase. The cult of personality was just so resonant. That's why it it just stuck, you know. Which was a bold thing for 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 uh, a, another Soviet leader to say about his predecessor.
2: Yeah, sure. And something I've always wanted to know for those people listening who aren't familiar with this song: it has three sound bites from uh, famous speeches. One by Malcolm X that starts it out. In the mm-hmm. middle, there's JFK, and the. The ending is FDR. So how I've always wanted to know how that went down, how you chose them, how the idea came up, how licensing came. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, well, yeah, well, yeah. That's that's
1: such a big part of it. I mean, because the cult of personality that people know is very different than the cult of personality that we used to play in the club. Like, in fact, we used to play the chords that that are the bridge chords. We played them kind of as an introduction. And then we have a pause, and then we play Martin Luther King, "Free at Last, Free at Last." Thank God Almighty, we are, uh, we are free at last. And then we go into the riff. Okay.
3: That was
1: that was the original way we played the song. It was
3: like, Or oh, even the, even so, even when we played it live, like there were breaks in the song or things. And and I remember doing the the Kennedy thing in the in the midst of those breaks. Ask not what your country can do for you. So. Those things were there from the very beginning, those ideas Mm -hmm. of what your idea of of a cult of personality was. Oh, okay, okay. Got you.
1: Okay, so the thing about using those snippets, it's the technology had finally gotten cheap enough of utilizing samples to make it affordable, like the Akai S900 sampler, Mm -hmm. the, the Akai S900, the 950, and then finally the Akai S1000 made it possible to do that kind of tape loop type of stuff that was very expensive to do. I mean, only like the Beatles and people like that or Pink Floyd would, would mm-hmm. be able to do it. Also, it connected to what was happening with hip hop because hip hop was changing because of the, the technology of looping and sampling. Because before that, it was like the 808 drum machine, mm-hmm. you know, the, the Soul Sonic Force. play at your own risk. Like, like that was a big change because you know, at first before that, it was like live bands. It was like live band imitating the band Chic, you know, playing mm-hmm. the track from Good Times. So, so it went from the live band to like eight oh eight drum machine and that sort of thing, and then samples, which allowed people to have a snippet of funky, make a loop out of funky drummer. Each technological mm-hmm. advance would be translated into music, and that 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 applies to rock music as well. But um. There was a kind of influence of of that in terms of utilizing sampling technology, and then you know there was stuff that Brian Eno was doing with David Byrne, like "My Life in the Bush of Ghosts." I I love that record. That was also very influential in terms of you know oh man I want to do something like that, and and that and that came into play.
2: What about getting permission? I mean, Betty Shabazz and Jackie Kennedy were still alive. Did they? Did did they? Did you have to get their sign off?
1: So this is so this is, a, so this is a, here's the a thing that's that's okay. A little inside baseball. <laughs> um, my first wife went to school with Malak Shabazz, one of, one of Betty's daughters. She was a she's a rock fan, and so so it, we have, I have to go back because at first we had the uh, Martin Luther King. Um, speech, but we couldn't use it because the King Foundation wanted ten thousand dollars. Okay. To use and a, and a
3: piece of the song.
1: Yeah. And we were like, and it was very, we were, I was very bummed out about it. And um, and I was walking around, uh, kind of dejected, in Harlem. And I was walking by one of these tables where these, these brothers are selling cassettes of various speeches of Malcolm X, and he had this one called "Speech to the Grassroots." And I bought it and I put it on. And the first thing is, you know, let us talk right down to earth in a language that everybody here can easily understand. And yeah. I was like, that's it. Mm-hmm. And basically wow. what had happened was Milleachip has interceded with Betty. and said, yo, this, this is cool. This is mm-hmm. going to be cool. And one of the things that was, I think I'm most proud of with regards to that song is all across rock radio, all across the country, people had to hear the voice of Malcolm X. Like that for me, and that happened just because of circumstance, but that for me to hear that on white rock stations and hear Malcolm X's voice introduce the song is just like, you know, I'm just really proud that we were the ones to to make that, be able to be allowed to make that happen. Mm. And all the rest, and the other speeches are in the public domain like Kennedy. So we didn't have to clear those.
2: Okay. Another thing that I've been thinking about recently, because in the context of our bungled response to the pandemic, it's it's becoming more widely accepted how destructive a presidency the Reagan administration was, insofar as Reagan was the first to say government's the problem, not the solution, and how he courted and empowered the mm-hmm. anti-science religious right, so... um you wrote that song in in the mid late eighties, so that mm-hmm. was right during his his reign. Was it like ever seen as social commentary?
1: Oh sure, but you you know it's so funny because like um, when when I was writing the lyrics, I I made a v- definitive choice to to use Mussolini instead of Adolf Hitler mm-hmm. because I wanted to have a representative of fascism, but Hitler there was another thing going on with. With Hitler, I didn't want I didn't want his name in the tune. I just didn't want it. And in a weird way, having Hitler, um, having Mussolini and Gandhi and these characters from the previous era, because it felt like putting Reagan in was just too on the nose and too in the current moment. There was something. There was also a, a a romance around having the voice of. You know John F. Kennedy mm-hmm. and FDR in the song that I, I felt wouldn't have been there in making reference to Reagan. I didn't want to give Reagan any shine anyway.
2: No. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for sure.
0: Well, you you did a good thing featuring because Mussolini actually he gets overshadowed by Hitler. And one of the things I learned in doing research for this book is that. Hitler hugely learned from Mussolini and copied him Mm. and instead of people think it's often the other way around. But anything to do with marketing, like being a media celebrity and marketing, knowing to speak to the people, all of that, like Mussolini was the first one. And and he also, which is relevant for uh, us today around the world, he was prime minister of a democracy for three years before he became dictator. And he slowly destroyed the democracy Mm -hmm. um, in ways that people do today.
2: Like, how did he destroy
0: it? Well, he had a propaganda barrage. He had been a journalist. He started discrediting democratic institutions. He joked about being a dictator. But, Mm -hmm. you know, he was the first one and nobody, no one understood what he was doing. Like, Mm -hmm. no one had any clue. And they thought, and then people didn't take him seriously. People thought he was a clown. The same things that have happened over and over, but he was the first. And there had already been a lot of violence, so he used all of the kind of toolkit that dictators used. He was kind of setting it up in those three years okay. um, before he became dictator. So I think it's important to appreciate, you know, his how, how many people learned from him. So I, was, I agree, he's better than Hitler, who did everything immediately, okay. and so it's not as much a lesson for the way things happen today. And what
2: are some of the vile acts that Mussolini's known for having perpetrated?
0: Well, after World, you know, the, I mean, he he and Hitler re- rose after World War I, and so there was so much violence that that he basically just continued the violence that had been in World War One and turned it onto the left and onto Catholics. And so there was all this kind of paramilitary violence, uh, the squadres, and so he posed as, He he made all this chaos and and violence, and then he posed as the law and order. This is what right-wing authoritarians always do, right? They create a crisis, and then they pose themselves a solution. Mm. And then later, he he perpetrated genocide in Libya. And one of the things that's very relevant is most of his victims were people of color from colonies in Africa, mm. um, from North Africa to Ethiopia, Eritrea, Somalia. And and he didn't go after the Jews for like sixteen years. And so he got a pass because people care you know, didn't it's like the Black Lives Don't Matter thing. And so even to this day there's a real misunderstanding of the amount of violence that he caused because he he attacked fewer white people in Europe than Hitler did.
2: Okay. Mm. I could use an an education from you. Uh, I mean, so there's fascism, there's totalitarianism, there's authoritarianism, <laughs> there's despotism, there's autocracy, there's dictatorships. Is there a simple way you could kind of break this down for me and and define them or or talk about how how some of them are different and which which ones can coexist?
0: I mean, I would take the whole show, but just. Um, <laughs> basically basically I, I see fascism as a subset of kind of authoritarianism which is a, a, a general term that um, can include totalitarianism it include it can include dictatorship mm-hmm. today we don't have as many one-party states outside of North Korea and China mm-hmm. but when the executive power crushes all the others and gets rid of opposition media and 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 puts people in prison and masses and uses violence, that's kind of authoritarianism. So I in my book I use that term Mm -hmm. to refer to everybody from Mussolini up to today and I just show how it changes because today it just works differently, which Mm -hmm. makes sense. But the Cult of Personality song is so amazing because it it just summarizes so many dynamics that are common to these regimes. It's really very brilliant. And life is funny because I remember I was just finishing my PhD, and it was on Italian fascism. And a friend told me, you know, this song came out, and you should listen to it. Hmm. <laughs> and I was like, wow, this song fits what I've been studying through books. And uh, so I, I, I always have referred back to the song. And then when I was writing um, this book, Strong Men. I listened to it sometimes. Uh, so it's very funny that then Matt contacted me and here we are That's today. That's so
3: cool. That's great.
1: You know, it was like uh, the, the, the one line, uh, I tell you one and one makes three. That was <sighs> directly from 1984 by George Orwell, because that was one of the things that they did to Winston Smith was the character mm-hmm. Winston Smith. who like said, how many fingers am I holding up? And he would say what it was and they would, Beat him, and it's said, like, how many, and he would say it again. And they're beating him, and then he realizes that they want him to say another number than the number that's obvious. Mm. And then he finally says three, and they stop beating him. and And it's kind of like that's sort of the process. That's part of the process. Like I, get, I mean, it's like I tell you one and one makes three,
3: and the correlation is you be- and you believe it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. This also talks about religion as well. Mm-hmm. You know, the Father, Son, and the Holy Ghost are all one person. What?
2: <laughs> yeah. And to that end, the the lyric that you guys have, um, you gave me fortune, you gave me fame, you gave me power in your God's name.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I feel like I'm seeing that all around. I saw this sign the other day. It was a Donald Trump sign, and it said, God, country, and guns.
1: He doesn't give a shit. not I mean, the thing that's so crazy about it is that people are projecting so much onto him. He doesn't care. He has never bent his knee. He's never bent the knee and asked forgiveness at any time in his life.
2: That's not believable. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Try
2: reading the Beatitudes and show me where the overlap is between Jesus Christ and Donald Trump, you know? Right.
0: It's horrifying to see that the whole like playbook... And one of the main things is that these guys get anointed as messengers of the divine. You know, Gaddafi was Allah, it, whoever, whatever the god is. But it's been so amazing, and often they're like the most low life, amoral individuals, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> including mm-hmm. Donald Trump. And so to see everybody like flocking around, where you know Pompeo, the Secretary of State, says God sent. Uh, Trump to to <laughs> rule us by divine. Be- and and it's like, it's happened over and over again. And uh, all these people are choosing, it. some of them don't believe it, probably inside themselves, and they're just doing what they need to do to keep their power. But either way, it's, it's just, I'm not shocked, because this is what I study, and it happens many times, but it's discouraging, to say the mm-hmm. least. Um, really, there's very few categories of crimes that Trump has not either committed or threatened to commit, including like murdering someone on Fifth Avenue when he was a candidate. That was like a huge red flag. And when I heard that, I ran home and did an op-ed for CNN. The same person who said that is also the person who everyone thinks is anointed by God Mm -hmm. to lead America and make it great again.
2: And what did you say in that op-ed?
0: Well, that obviously preaching violence is a big red flag, but really that he wasn't only saying that he was capable of violence he was also saying that he believes he, he is above the law mm-hmm. and that if he were elected he would act like he's above the law because it wasn't just i am going to shoot someone in public it was that i'm not going to lose any of my followers so he was saying this was really early this was january 2016
3: mm-hmm. and
0: and it's this is your song again it was saying that he knew he had made this bond with his followers that was all about belief and faith. And so that he was boasting that he could do anything, even murder someone in broad daylight, and they would still believe him.
3: Ruth, I have a question. It's about the environment that brought about someone like Donald Trump and the like. Bernie and I had this conversation a while back that part of the ingredients to this was having someone that previous to, to Donald Trump who most people perceived as being not only, not just wrong, but black and Mm -hmm, wrong. mm -hmm. I I understand that that's what brought us to the point that we are in now, but how do you counter something like that? How historically has that been turned around?
0: Unfortunately, often it takes the leader leading the nation into a total disaster for a certain group of core followers to understand and wake up and see that what they thought was not true. And, and it's interesting that these, these guys usually come to power after some period of emancipation, whatever that means at the time, it's usually some combination of like worker emancipation or like in, in, you know, mostly white countries in Europe in the thirties, it was like women, female emancipation, workers, the left, maybe, which was, you know, more workers' rights or like the, you know, the idea that. They were becoming more, you know, too many Jews or too many Slavs, this kind of thing. But mm. it's it's very hard to reverse it um, once the kind of cult of personality is solidified. It sometimes takes, like in, in Italy and Germany, it took being bombed in World War II for some people to wake up and realize that these guys were charlatans. And, and it's hard because, you know, Trump had been wanting to run for president for a long time, but then... There was such a racial fury at the temerity of Obama at having ruled it all, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And and what's been really interesting to me is that Trump is, doesn't just wanna with all and his administration; they're not trying to only do all kinds of policy things to reverse, you know, any racial emancipation, gender emancipation, same sex rights. He's got a personal crusade to undo and cancel his whole legacy. Because it's like he's so threatened by this black man and all that he achieved that it's like a, an obsession. And I've seen that before with uh, with dictators in the past when you had dictators.
1: See, I have a thought about that. And that is that I think that Obama was such a shock to the system, was such, yeah. a, a, such a fundamental shock to white supremacy. And I mean that to say conservative and liberals. This is a thing, another part of it, because Obama, his whole thing is he was a centrist. Mm -hmm. But the part of the problem was that he had all of the conservatives against him and he had maybe a a quarter to a third of the Democrats against him.
0: You know? Yeah, I I totally agree with you uh, about the culture not wanting to accept that, and that includes Democrats, liberals. Because here's somebody who... Also had a white mother and had direct African connections. Mm-hmm. He, he had everything that he's cosmopolitan. It's like he was. There were certain areas of, of life where people of color were allowed to be stars, but not here, not in the White House. Mm-hmm. And I think it. I think your analysis is is one that will um, take more and more hold as people understand what's going on now with Trump as a reaction to that. So I'm really glad you said that.
3: Half the band at present are are children of immigrants Mm -hmm. in one way or another. So our understanding of the world as it pertains to America is very, very different, I Mm -hmm. think, than most people's understanding of the world. Is why we come up with some of the songs that we come up with, Mm -hmm. is based on our understanding of this world that we know as much about mom, apple pie and Chevrolets as we know about curry goat and yams. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Nope. So, oh, yeah. um, um, so I think that gives the perspective that we have often comes into clash with the quote unquote American cultural ideal.
0: Yeah. That also breeds creativity because you have like maybe sure. a half of a, f- outside and you're looking, you know, there are other ways of doing things. And I think it's, I think it's reflected in, you know, many of your songs, a lot of your work. And, and I know for myself, I'm a child of immigrants, one, one from, you know, Middle East and uh, one from Scotland. And what's been really helpful uh, is that I've looked, I've turned my gaze on Trump in America and becoming this America being turned into more of an authoritarian political culture with an eye from outside. And when I started publishing stuff in CNN, the first people I heard from were people who were immigrants who had fled regimes, maybe a junta or communism. And they would say, oh, I've been waiting for someone to say that. Mm. And then other people were like, are you crazy? Like I got a lot of, you know, male people thought I was Mm. hysterical and alarmist. But I think Mm -hmm. that having that kind of background and being able to have a lens onto America that that is informed by other experiences is really important.
2: And so what do you say to people who suggest it's alarmist to describe these affairs as devolving towards authoritarianism?
0: Well, today I can just point them because unfortunately I've, I haven't been wrong about anything. Mm. My first piece on Trump was November, 2015, about his racial stuff. Those are my first pieces. Mm -hmm. And by the time he got into office, I'd already published a piece that, said Trump is following the authoritarian playbook. And uh, unfortunately, it's all come true. So then I can just kind of say, look, <laughs> mm-hmm. look at what's gone on, you know? That's so. a terrible thing about
1: clowns, right? This is why clowns freak us out. Like <laughs> yeah. One of the things about Trump that's very disturbing is the way the media, particularly the New York media, just indulged. Mm. He was kind of a cheap date on a Saturday night. They could mm-hmm. get they could get a good headline out of them. They could get a decent quote out of them. And the only magazine that really took on Trump was the old spy magazine, which is a kind of humor and satire magazine. And they skewered Trump relentlessly. Because the thing is, Trump has been like a public $3 bill for a really long time.
3: <laughs> Particularly in New York City,
1: yeah. If you're of a certain age, you know know that he destroyed Atlantic City. He destroyed it. And he destroyed it. I mean, he was successful. He had one casino with his name on it. Great. Then he had to build another casino in the same town with his name on it. And then he built a third casino with his name on it. And the market (sighs) couldn't handle it. And the bottom fell down. And then he just split. Mm-hmm. And this kind of thing, this whole mythology of him being a brilliant businessman and that people accepted this idea. And the fact that other people in the business community don't ever say, Donald, you don't have the money. I mean, it's amazing to me that other real estate developers and other people that have actually really have money don't just say, yeah. Donald, you're worth 500 million tops. You have 500 million in cash. That's it. That's all you got. But the fact that Nobody would step up and just say, dude, at no point did any media organization delve into any of you know the thing about concrete and mafia ties like mm-hmm. well, as a real estate developer, well, you know, what are your ties to shady concrete or whatnot? People mm-hmm. wouldn't, they just because he amused them. He was a mm-hmm.
3: quote-unquote playboy. Well, yeah, the other thing is to expose him for what he was would also put these other people on blast mm. as That's well. Right. That that all of their dealings would have been just as, are just as dubious as what he's doing. He's basically taking what they did without the clout or money to do so and doing it. So if, if these people with money had said to him, you can't do this. He says, says well, you do it. Why mm-hmm. can't I?
0: Yeah, I, I think that's right. I also think I, I, I always felt d- during the, the Mueller investigation and when people were wondering why some of the top Democrats were not going after Trump more you know, strenuously, I had this feeling that they didn't want to rock the boat so much that the whole system fell over. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that one of the most brilliant things about your song is that you... You do mention Kennedy and you mention Gandhi and you point out how it's it's easy for us to to hold up Mussolini and Stalin because they're just obviously evil and to say yeah sure they had personality cults they you know controlled everything but what you're doing in that song is you're talking about a system a way of having politics as spectacle
3: mm-hmm.
0: and our written circuses yeah, which, which is more subversive. And I think that a lot of these points we're making both about even liberals wouldn't accept Obama and this point here about how it's not just, you know, we fetishize people of all different political positions, even people who are do-gooders. And then we make politics into like a just an adulation and that those same processes can create a Trump.
2: So this may be a... a- a good opportunity to ask you to speak to that. Like what are the leader follower relationship that I've read in some of your work in, in authoritarian regimes? Could you talk about that a little bit?
0: Yeah, I can start with just a lyric from the song Mm -hmm. that kind of sums it up. There's many lyrics that sum it up, but I exploit you still, you love me. That's one summation of, uh, of the leader follower relationship. Another is I have a good quote by Charlie Chaplin from 1939. He says, a dictator is a man who comes from below and throws himself into an even deeper hole. The world watches him and jumps into the void after him. Mm. So these individuals are highly destructive and there's a fascination in that. And the song talks about that they're all things to all people and people project onto them. Um, we've been talking about that, mm. what they think is needed or what... They think will solve the things that are keeping them up at night. Um, And the leaders, to a man, they're all extremely skilled. And like when we talk about charisma, I tried to point out, and when I was in my writing, how one leader after another actually worked really hard at having this quote charisma. And charisma is a real thing, clearly, like some people just have it. But it's also about performance. These guys are performers. And it's been really interesting, Trump and his rallies. Like he can't have the rallies as much because coronavirus. And so that's, he's been tweeting more. He's been, you know, even more in a worse mood than usual because he mm-hmm. needs his audience. He needs his like ego adulation because these guys, they're like no one without their audience because they're empty shells. They're just, I don't feel sorry for them, but they're sad people who have no sense of worth if they can't abuse mm-hmm. other
2: people, yeah. basically. This kind of gets us into the realm of of talking about propaganda. I mean, given the stark divide between pre-internet age and the present, what parallels can you draw between what the Trump administration's doing and and examples from history?
0: Well, I think that the way Trump uses Twitter is the same way in a in a sense that Mussolini used newsreels because it's really important. And this is for other celebrities too, like what you were talking about in the song. You need the direct link of the leader and the nation. They have to have their own channel of talking to them because they need their own bond. And that bond is really important. So again, Mussolini used newsreels, Hitler, who he had that creepy voice that everyone was fascinated by, he used radio, and Trump uses Twitter really effectively and it bypasses institutions it bypasses other politicians and again it makes them f- seem really authentic and every person with a personality cult, and the song talks about this there's the idea that they're larger you say this they're larger mm-hmm. than life but they're also an every man right mm-hmm. and that that ability to talk directly to people at their level is really important
1: Tell you the best movie to, is a, a Face in the Crowd with Patricia Neal and, yeah, and Andy Griffiths, like Lonesome Roads.
2: Yeah.
1: That character, mm-hmm. I mean, this is one of the greatest. This is, I think, Andy Griffiths' greatest role because he he's Absolutely. just like this folksy guy on the radio and he's a, just a deeply fascistic personality and determined to uh, to rise up out of the muck at any cost. And uh, I, I, it, it's kind of interesting that something from the 1950s, you know, has such resonance, you know, and a song from 88, 89, has so much resonance with the current moment. It's freaky. <laughs> yeah.
2: It's freaky. Are a lot of people knocking on your doors, Corey and Vernon, to to talk about this song these days? I got a notice on Twitter
1: the other day that they had an aerial of the White House, and they used uh, a news organization used cult of personality o- over an aerial of the White House, like it was either <laughs> today or yesterday. You know the resonance of it. It's it's kind of we're looking at it, we're looking at it, and, and in a lot of ways. Yeah we've been preparing ourselves with our dystopian narratives um everything from logan's run to the purge to night of the living dead you know we've been we've been preparing for the crazies and all these other kind of science fiction we're living in the middle of a kind of crazy combination but it's real time. You know, we're we here we are facing this incredible, not just this pandemic, but this, you know, this nightmarish oh. you know, the murder of George Floyd was a nightmare. It's a nightmare. And and the nightmare thing had been predicted by Malcolm X. Malcolm X said this is, you know, we talked about racial problems. He said this is a human problem. And and one of the things that Malcolm said, if you don't deal with this human problem, you're gonna see terrorism that'll terrify you.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: You know, that whole the casualness. Of the policeman murdering George Floyd is what has sent the country up in flames. I mean, I mean, mm. at, so, at a certain point, the fact that people in Portland are fighting for people who are in a deep minority in that state. There really are not that many African Americans in Portland in the city, and the fact that mm. they're facing down a kind of incursionary force sent in by Trump, you know, that says something.
2: Yeah. As you're talking about that, it's like I'm, I asked myself as I'm seeing all of this happen, what's been going on in the last five months or so. And reading about what's going on with the post office and the appointment of that postmaster general, I wonder, <laughs> I've lost so much perspective. I don't know if it's happening. And am I watching this in slow motion? Is it sped up? I have no idea. You know, I've lost all perspective.
0: <laughs> yeah, that's where time, the, the theme of time is really interesting when you're in these periods and democracies. Just your, your society is changing every day. And... When you have a, uh, a military coup, you go out of the house, you go to work or school, and then by the time you come home, or you never come home because you've been arrested, it's all changed. Like mm. it's instant. And then other places, this way, I was saying before, Mussolini's more like the way it happens now. Little by little, day after day, he kind of chipped away at the political culture of democracy, and people didn't know what was hitting them until it was too late in his case. And all these societies you see like in in Chile, yes, they had a coup, but the situation was deteriorating for years and they kept telling themselves it can't happen here because all the other countries around them had become uh, many with US backing. They'd already become like military juntas and dictatorships and they'd stayed a democracy. So Chileans were like, oh, it's not gonna happen to us because we have strong democracy. And now you you see in America that we're supposed to be the exception, which you can only think if you ignore uh, that we didn't really have a democracy mm-hmm. for people of color and also all the things that they did abroad. Mm-hmm. And, and yet people cling to that. And a lot of when you were saying before about the U.S. media, a lot of what I've been trying to do in giving, I've given like over a hundred interviews, I am also, I'm trying to Kind of do civic education, including of journalists, because they don't have the frame to understand what Trump's up to. Um, mm-hmm. not that they're they're extremely smart people, I'm not trying to sound condescending, but it's the same problem that many Americans have. They didn't picture themselves getting into this kind of situation. It was something that happened in other countries, right? Mm-hmm. So we're we're not prepared. And so time becomes, we see every day that things are happening that are really bad, like now the post office. And every day we, we see pictures on social media of locked post boxes. I
1: I have to say something right here, you know, to me, yeah, yeah, please. To me. Okay. So my father worked for the post office Mm -hmm. and he actually worked on some of the first computer systems that sorted mail. And, uh, Mm -hmm. I, I can't think of a more fundamentally American institution, positive institution than the post office. The post office is a true, cross-section of the American populace, and it's mandated in the Constitution. Like, getting mail to your son that's on the battlefield, the post office is doing that. FedEx isn't doing that. And UPS isn't doing that. You know, like, getting mail to your daughter who's in prison, FedEx isn't doing that. The U.S. Postal Service is doing that. Just the box itself. Removing the boxes, I find it, I find it fundamentally un- un-American in a way that's just. And people complain about the postal service and the post service always broke. Well, you know, Congress has been taking money from the post. They, you know. The, the postal service has been is been kept hobbled they constantly take money away from the postal service also it's an attack on business and also you know you're going to slow down the you're going to slow down the postal service that means people's checks get late that means people's bills arrive late that means paying bills arrive late it messes up so many businesses ah
2: okay i'm done means ballots get there late yeah.
1: but all, all of that to slow down ballots Small businesses are already under a tremendous amount of strain. So now these little Etsy businesses that are doing selling masks and whatnot, they're getting screwed around for this?
3: Mm-hmm. Well, that's the bigger picture is that it's nothing else matters. Like Ruth was saying, this is a system that does not care about the little people as much as they talk about the little people. Mm-hmm. This is, you know, what's called crony capitalism. Yeah. DeJoy is some guy who was put in there because he was a major donor and he has a vested interest in the post office not doing what it does. Like Sick. the same guy like the same person he put in the EPA who wants to destroy the EPA. Right. It's not beyond the realm of what this is exactly. If you look at it from that perspective, like everybody that's there is there to enrich themselves and no one else. Yeah
0: yeah, I mean, some of course, a lot of this was already in place, but that not to this extent. And there's a qualitative difference. The coronavirus thing is the is the most smoking gun of it, where, you know, people get upset when I do interviews, and I'm maybe too blunt. And I just say Trump doesn't care if you live or die. He just couldn't care less. Um and Mary Trump says the same thing at the end of her book that he won't he doesn't care if you die and he won't even remember that you lived because, The thing is leaders like trump are and this is hard for americans because we again we think we're we're special they're not he's not there to be a president in any recognizable sense he's there to exploit the country to get rich off of it to get as much power as he can and he really doesn't care about anything else so all of these leaders do stuff that's profoundly destructive. Like, why would you destroy business through the post office? Why would you do that? Why would you let people die when it would be possible to have universal testing? It doesn't. So people are like, well, he's crazy because it doesn't make sense, but they're not crazy. They have a logic. It's just not the logic that, people who grew up in a democracy are used to
3: or or their understanding of a democracy are used to. Right. This isn't like you were saying, Ruth, this is not new. This is what we saw with Reagan. This is what we saw with Nixon. This is not new.
1: Well, you know, the thing about it is this, you know, there was, there was a bomb, there was a bombing. This is so. There was a bombing that killed two, 200 plus of sailors, I believe it was in Lebanon, if I'm not mm-hmm. mistaken. And Reagan went on television and he took full responsibility for what happened. I remember him doing it. Whether you believed him or not, he kind of went to the nation and this is over
3: 200 sailors. The barracks in Lebanon. Yes, I remember that. Right. That was like 1983. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm.
1: And, and he, and he, he, He did it. He did the, whatever you think of his policy, and I don't think much of his policies, but he at least did that thing that presidents are supposed to do when things go sideways for the American people. We spent a trillion dollars over the death of about four or 5,000 people in one day. A trillion dollars. And we've caused the deaths of hundreds of thousands of people. Not going to relitigate that. We've lost... Of uh, Almost 170,000 Americans to one cause, and there's been no address from the Oval Office. This is something that presidents, you go to the Oval Office and you address the nation. Brazil, when they had lost, when they just lost 100,000 people, and he's there's a mini-me Trump running Brazil, <laughs> mm-hmm. they had three days of national mourning. Three days. With that guy in charge,
2: they did it. So, Ruth, I would imagine that you have a unique perspective to be watching all of this happen in real time with the Trump administration. But I want to know, like, where does he deviate from what you know as the playbook? Like This, this idea of a kleptocracy, I mean, I'm, I'm sure other authoritarian leaders have enriched themselves, but my, my hunch is that a lot of them had some interest in, in the national identity you know uh, or it seemed at least a little bit more authentic and i also i, I do have another question for you about w- what binds all of these things together especially what's going on now among brazil uk us poland is these these nationalist phenomena but where it just seemed like the the trump phenomenon is is its own animal
0: in part it's its own animal because america is in one way america's very different We have gun violence. No other country that's in a peaceful state, not in a like sectarian civil war has so many, has like what we have like 500 million guns in circulation in private hands. And there's a whole category of toddlers who are, you know, victims of gun violence. So there are things that happen here that don't happen in other places. So that's one difference. So that violence and loss are probably processed a bit differently the other the other way i mean trump is very similar in his character to past leaders one way he's different is that even berlusconi who did a lot of the same things believe me including like he was like a lackey to putin he, you it's i start my book with that mm. because I, I was shocked at how similar it is <laughs> but trump's just more dangerous because america's bigger as nuclear weapons but even Berlusconi, who owned TV networks and was a total creature of TV, talk about cult of personality. Um, he used to read. <laughs> Trump is like the only person who gets his entire his entire world is formed by TV. Um, and his wife, his first wife Ivana, once said that he had two mm-hmm. books by his bed, and one was Art of the Deal, and the other was Hitler's speeches, which is like very scary. Oh, but. God. Um, but he, he, his whole world is formed by appearances and spectacle and TV to an extent that n- no other leader is like that. Um, so that's, that's a difference. But the other stuff is Bolsonaro, they're very similar. Um, e- each country has its own history and its own way of understanding things, and, but personalities and their agendas are very similar.
2: So what can we do? I mean, how do we stop this runaway train?
0: (laughs) Over to you guys. (laughs) I mean, one thing that's worked in the past, and this is really more when you have, like what's going on in Belarus right now, when you have a dictatorship that's crumbling, and you've already had kind of this tyranny, is mass protest. And, and it's worked, look at, you know, certain things have, have changed because of the Black Lives Matter protests. You have to have sustained mass protest. In other, again, in other contexts, it can sh- it's not only against the leader, but it shows all of his cronies. Uh, because the, the one thing that can take these guys down is if their cronies start rethinking. Like if, yeah. you know, even it's so sad how little it could take. If you had Mitch McConnell and a couple of others just retract their support... Trump would not be able to do a lot of the things. He'd have to back down on a lot of things, but mm-hmm. they don't. So you can put pressure on them, but mass protest, nonviolent mass protest has been really, really important in history. And it's been amazing that it, it was going on even with the pandemic. And that, that says a lot. And I think mm-hmm. that we'll see mass protests around the election.
2: Mm-hmm. We're We're... Kind of in wrap-up territory in the time department, yeah. do do any of you have uh, questions for, for one another? So there were um, times where
1: the the populace really turned. I, I believe the, the populace turned on Mussolini, and they turned on Nicholas <laughs> Ceausescu. Um, mm-hmm. So, I mean... Are there other examples where you know it gets got so egregious where the people just you know because I think there's a, a funny polarity thing, like oftentimes people think they have America on lock, but America's a weird and funny country, and it can flip mm-hmm. um, just suddenly. And you know, if a particular celebrity disavows Trump, it could start a like you know they say like a, yeah. a butterfly flaps its wings. And all of a sudden, it turns into a tsunami. What are your perspectives on things like that and other situations where, you know, it seemed like it was the final reel, and then suddenly, everything flipped? Uh,
0: that that happens, because the thing that the, the saddest thing and why these countries end up like in ruins is because everybody knows that the leader is making destructive decisions and that he's not actually sent by God to go back to that point in our conversation, um, that he is actually a crook, all these things, but they're too afraid, you know, to say anything. But sometimes, uh, when there's an ex, it could be an external pressure or when the, the country, uh, again, it took getting bombed for the fascists, but there, there does reach a point at which, people who have been supporting him see it's not in their interest anymore. You, you need enough people to be doing that in order for that to work. Mm-hmm. So um,
3: would you say that, this, that the, the pandemic and, and the fact that COVID-19 is a major factor in this is going to turn things around?
0: It could. I, I usually people have to have direct experience of loss. Mm. Um, their house is bombed or they go under. And there have been people who believed that the, the Trump Kool-Aid and felt that they could get over that, you know, Trump would give them a miracle. And then, there are, and then two people in their family died of COVID, you know, or Trump didn't told them not to wear masks. And then, so they've been making videos that people have been making videos saying that they were wrong. Mm. And that's really important because just as an occult, you know, the studies show that it's better if if someone who used to be a believer is the most persuasive person, mm-hmm. um, because someone like me can be seen as the hate mail I get, you know, just some kind of like left. I'm often called a radical leftist, which I'm really not, by writers, and so they write you off from the beginning. But somebody who used to be one of the believers is much more compelling. Um, so we need to. I feel like when occasionally somebody who's a Trumpist comes out and criticizes, I think it's really important to support that person no matter. I, I'm
1: 100% on, on that. Good, you know, like, good. I, I know it feels good to demonize the people that make you mad, right? They just make you mad. They're saying dumb shit, whatever. But I think those people that, are, that have been crushed by this thing, we got to support them, especially if they're coming out and saying what it was for them for real. I think it's very important to do that.
3: Is is there something to be said for the fact that the idea of conservatism versus liberalism is really not true? That no one is as conservative as they say they are. No one is as liberal as they say they are. Does that factor into any of this that can define that common ground?
0: I don't know. Everything's in flux right now because look at all the people who used to be conservatives who are now never Trumpers, like the whole Lincoln Project, those people. Mm. so what that's but this is what happens when authoritarians come they they blow everything out of the water and they shake up everything you know alliances and they lead to people who just doing things they might not have done so because you have all these hardcore you know reagan strategists and fans of um all kinds of people who are now working against trump and you wouldn't have expected that um but i think that again it we're all saying it. it's really important to support these people even though, which means we have to bookmark some things. Yes, they've had this bad yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, thing yeah, in the past, yeah. but right now the important thing is to get rid of Trump from office.
2: All hands on deck.
0: Exactly. All,
1: hand, all hands on mm-hmm. deck to deal with the loose cannon.
0: Exactly.
2: You know, one thing that I, I wanted to ask you that's sort of related to what Corey just asked, but also piggybacking on, earlier, we were talking about, you know, people who are accusing you of being alarmist. Is there any symmetry between the right-wingers calling leftists alarmists for saying that we're uh, spiraling in towards authoritarianism and right-wing folk, you know, calling Bernie Sanders and AOC communists and threatening the arrival of Soviet-era breadlines? Is there any is there some kind of common thread? Like, is there a root fear among both left and right in that sort of, um, in, in that rhetoric?
0: I mean, there can be, but one of the oldest right wing things that you see from, it's like literally for a hundred years over and over again, is that the right starts to label and lump together everybody into a quote, radical left. Mm -hmm. And the Trump administration has been doing this very effectively. And so it's polarization. So they want they want to scare people by getting rid of differences between liberals and social democrats and progressives and people who there aren't too many anarchists or communists in America today, but mm-hmm. and William Barr, the attorney general, who's really such a scary and villainous person. Mm-hmm he's been doing this too. And I, I get really worried about that because the objective is to, sh- is to, if you look at my uh, Twitter account, my pin tweet from 2018 is like, watch out when they start calling everybody an angry mob, because then they want to start arresting everybody. Mm-hmm. They want to create a sense of a communism's coming and then they can arrest everybody. So that's an old trick.
3: If you were to take a thousand yard view of this, it's chaos, and some somehow some sort of control has to be taken. Something has to change. I sure as hell hope so.
1: Yeah, you know what? I, I kind of feel like we can't already start throwing in the towel. You know what I mean? Like, I, I mean that's like it seems. I think when McCarthy was Joe McCarthy was like had everyone's quaking in their boots, and and all of a sudden it flipped on him. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, I agree. And I guess I'd say as a closing thing, you can never give up hope because what this kind of people want is to make us feel defeated and then feel like it's nothing means anything and there's nothing we can do anyway and we get they want us to be like fatalistic. So mm-hmm. it's really important mm-hmm. to keep that hope and have faith in um, our country. And I think it's a very good... Comment that things can change quickly, so I think we need to keep that in mind.
2: And what is one example from from what what you know of Mussolini or or any other instances in history where there's actually been that the seesaw has flipped over from that one final grain of sand when an authority authoritarian leader has has uh, been ousted?
0: Well, I'd give instead of those, I'd give an example of today in Erdogan's Turkey. Mm -hmm. Um, and Erdogan doesn't get enough attention for all of his crimes and he's got, he's arrested hundreds of thousands of people. But in Istanbul, in the, in, it's not the capital, but you know, the main city, the race for mayor was won by an opposition candidate against Erdogan's will. And this guy, uh, Imamoglu is his last name. He won by preaching love, he won by going around and giving people hugs. This was in 2019 before corona. Wow. He won by being the exact opposite of what Erdogan's candidate and Erdogan are, which is about vertical and you know the whole authoritarian, the vertical authority and you have to obey. And this was a huge upset. And so that was an example of things swinging back the other way and and this man is he's mayor right now. So it can it can be done.
2: Okay. Well, thank you all so much. This has been tremendous. I really appreciate you coming on the show. This was great. Yeah, thank um, you. Was amazing.
3: Thank you so much.
1: Really, really great.
2: Stay informed and check out protectdemocracy.org. Also be sure to pick up a copy of Ruth's new book, Strong Men from Mussolini to the Present, which will be available this November. And stay up to date with what's going on with Vernon and Corey at livingcolor.com facebook.com slash living color and get new living color merchandise at coldcutsmerch.com slash living color sing for science is co-produced with the talk house and our music is by italian artist panoram special thanks to tim M. Gishov, chris nilsson chris leo red sword ottavio media and tcb public relations for helping make today's episode possible if you like what you heard check out our other episodes and subscribe to the show thanks for listening